Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack and here he comes! Good time of day to everybody. Welcome to episode 113 of Americans Watching the Footy, our round 15 recap. The buy rounds are done with. I am Benjamin Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California with Brian Harambe, the footy cat, sleeping next to me. Wait, Ethan, why is he not sleeping next to you? I'm in this place called New York. You ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. Did you uh, get yourself a New York slice? I did. You went to the very Sparrow. I did not get a slice there. I actually got a slice from a place right next door because that Sparrow was closing up at that time. But I, I made the pilgrimage. I, I went to the Sparrow. I saw it. Too bad they changed the signage. Yeah, that, that's a disappointment. What else have you been up to in New York? Uh, Yankees games. Going to my first Mets game at City Field tonight. Oh, it's about the Mets, baby. You love the Mets. Let's go, baby. Get a home run. Love the Mets. Let's go, Mets. They, they really pissed one away yesterday. I'm... Hoping to get, like, a really authentic Mets experience. Oh, I love the the broadcasters. Sound like their 40-second losses, their most horrific yet. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about uh, horrific losses in this one. There are a couple of them. But this round started uh, pretty joyously for you, Ethan. Geelong 11-12-78, defeating Melbourne 7-15-63. Holy shit, what a win. Um, Is this more satisfying than the round 17 Thursday win last year? Also against the D's? Yes, of course, with the uh, great Italian salute coming from that. Yes. Because it was less expected? Because it was less expected, because Jeremy Cameron basically died. He's he's fine, by the way. He's he's fine. Yep. Uh, he's got a miss this week, but he's good to go. Yeah, had a bonfire going the next day. Showed off his new Range Rover. The cows were getting all over it. Had a very normal Jeremy Cameron time, honestly. Yeah, well... Gary Rowland went in front of the one-on-one contest with Cameron, inadvertently took him out, and Gary said, oh, shit, I have to kick the goals? Okay, I'll kick the goals again. That's eight goals in his last three games. And he immediately rectifies the whole kicking three goals and not winning thing. I loved that when he went over to apologize to Cameron, Cameron said, I don't care, just win the game. And uh, they did. A massive run in the fourth quarter, a 38 to 16 quarter and all that really doesn't do it justice because Melbourne got a couple of late goals. It was six goals in a row to start the fourth. The moment that I really realized like, oh shit, we're winning this game was when Zach Guthrie of all people kicked a go-ahead goal with 17-19 to go. You know what then, rather than Blitzovs or Rowan's third? I wasn't sure up until Rowan's third. When you get a goal from a guy like Zach Guthrie, especially in that spot to give you a lead in the fourth quarter, it's hard to lose a game like that. I found this a very frustrating watch both ways, honestly, with the struggles for both teams being pretty predictable. Melbourne were getting the better of the midfield contests, 
a lot of the time. Geelong were cleaning up from stoppage later on in the game, but when the Ds were taking advantage early, it just felt like same old cats. And then when Melbourne were struggling to clamp things down offensively, it was when they were looking too deep, kicking too long to talls. I mean, yes, Jacob Van Royen is a great mark, but you have the small forwards who are capable of putting on leads and streaming through. I needed, I wanted to see more Cade Chandler involvement in particular in this game, and I did not see it. And that's not just because he's one of my fantasy guys. Cats had a little trouble at times with letting Van Royen kind of get open in some of those contests, and that was scary. And they were lucky that he really didn't punish them. To your point, Melbourne were plus 12 on clearances, plus 14 on stoppages, and plus 16 on hitouts. But having Reese Stanley in there, despite him not being necessarily great, changes everything because it opens up Mark Blitzobs to play the whole ground. It opens up Sam DeConing to defend. It was his best game of the year. It was so much depth stepping up. And uh, fourth quarter Atkins is back. That's t- couple, a couple of tremendous fourth quarter moments from Tom Atkins as the Cats were working out that lead. He chased down Bailey Fritsch to cut off a Melbourne scoring chance. And it was off that rebound that Mark Blitzovs got the goal. I was super hyped for Blitzovs. And then Atkins had a soccer to clear the defensive 50 once again. The pressure continued through the man who we must thank for changing our lives, Brad Close, getting to Lockie Hunter of all people. Then after that, Rowan ran in his third. At that point, I was ready to take out the Sharpie. That was such an awesome sequence. The end of was like, um, and, and Close had been liable for a couple lapses in the forward 50 himself. He'd had a good game and he had a tall task, quite literally, because he ended up taking that Jake Lever matchup once Cameron was injured. That was quite early. And, you know, he did clearly well enough there. But if we're talking about individual efforts, I want to highlight two players who we both called on to step up when we're talking about last week with the disappointment from the previous Thursday. And then also in the progress reports, we wanted more consistency out of Jack Henry and Tanner Brune, and we got it from both of them. Yeah, Henry, I really didn't notice a ton in this game, truthfully, but honestly, that's a good thing then. Yeah, he largely got the best of Bailey Fritch. Fritch is going to get a couple goals. That's just how it is. He got two, including the very last one. But Bruins, the one that I want to focus on more, how he didn't get a coach's vote, I do not understand. He was really sharp, ended up with two one-off, 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions. This felt like his first complete four-quarter game for the Cats. We'd seen a quarter at a time, and that's helped them, you know, work out an advantage, maybe not get them over the line. He played his fullest game yet in hoops. That said, the the guys that I really focused on were Blitzovs, Atkins, and DeConing. Understandably so. And then Brad Close, I've said for weeks, he's got so much speed, get him involved, play him all over the ground, and he had 24 disposals and 14 contested possessions, and it's just a completely different-looking team when he gets involved. Between Atkins and Close, you have the pressure of the speed. And again, when the ball was in the 450, Close ended up being manned by Lever. And taking Lever out of the contest was so impactful. Yes, the praise goes to Stephen May more of the time, the more consistent All-Australian, someone who tends to be in the spotlight more. But I think Lever is the better of the two in the air, and he was limited. Still got 15 disposals, 14 intercepts, and nine contested possessions. But I didn't really notice him as much in this one. The two times now I have slept through the first eight or so minutes of a game and then woken up, really good things have happened. The other one was the Richmond game last year. 
maybe that is just a sign that Jack Henry will do well when you sleep a little bit. Yeah, I woke up and first off, I was so tired. I thought we were down 14 to one. And I was like, okay, who's on the ground? Who's hurt? Please don't be Brian. It wasn't Brian, who actually had a pretty quiet game, but the rest of the team really stepped up. And the, it, it was like probably the next worst possible thing. And you know, the way they overcame that, that was really inspiring. Tom Stewart in his interview said that Myers had some really impactful plays, maybe not ones that were super noticeable, but important in a couple chains. I mean, he was solid. He just wasn't particularly like above and beyond like he's been a lot of times this year. But you had a complete team performance. I can't really think of too many negatives. I mean, I guess Jed Buse was a little quiet and Jake Kolajashny is just very uncomfortable with the ball. Can't trust him to, you know, take like uncontested kicks, but I like his actual defensive positioning and he does a good job one-on-one. -on -one. This game was much more like last year's team in that, you know, they only allowed 63 points. Yes, they got benefit of some inaccuracy, but and some good they defended really well. And it was wet as well. Rain picked up in the second quarter, it didn't wasn't raining as hard from like the middle of the third quarter or so, but the ground had already been affected enough. But fourth quarter, Atkins is officially back, and that's a huge win. I had an epiphany midway through this game where I just thought to myself, you know what? We're not getting things to go our way. We're not getting luck with injuries. We're not getting help from other teams. We just got to go out and win. And if we win, we'll get where we need to. And if we don't, just don't worry about things out of your control. Just Forget ladder position, forget finals, just go out there and play. And they did that. And just, you know, there's there's a chance that they really emptied the tank for this game. And this is our big last hurrah for the season. And things just kind of fall apart from here. Would you mind that? It would be unfortunate, but it wouldn't be like devastating. You won the flag, damn it. Yeah. Had you fallen short last year, it would have been. It, you would feel very, very different about this. I can only exactly, imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine how Swans fans felt after that Thursday nighter a couple weeks ago, for example. You know, paying the flag tax is a thing. Unless you're Richmond. I, I mean, they paid it in 2021. Maybe they decided to pay it on layaway. I think this might just be one of those really inspiring wins that sets you up for the rest of the season. But look, it's a tough schedule. Whatever happens, go out and put up this effort, and it'll be hard to be mad. I do want to note a couple of things for Melbourne. Caps really kept Stephen May out of things. He was really just... You know, the guy who kicked things out of their own end. Other than that, he was very quiet. They did well on May and Lever both. And I haven't seen many teams be able to do that aside from, I mean, on occasion, Collingwood has been able to shut them down. Essen did it somewhat in also not perfect conditions in the gather round. Lever did still end up with those 14 intercepts, but he wasn't super visible. It was really Salem and Rivers that carried the Melbourne defense. Rivers are behind 25 disposals and 12 intercepts. And Christian Salem, 22 disposals. I also thought Michael Hibbert was decent. Not like, you know, blow you away, but decent. Yeah, Hibbert's going to be out this uh, coming week, actually, I believe. Uh, Hibbert and, uh, I'll just mention it now, Clayton Oliver will remain out for the trip to Alice. So clearly there was a setback in the hamstring recovery. Wonder if he tried to push for too quick of a return. But... In regard to the players that were on the field, Salem in the first half had 11 kicks and every single one of them were efficient. Pretty much all of them hit the target. And the Melbourne defense has looked much more cohesive once he returned from his persistent thyroid issue. Took a little bit of the responsibility of carrying off Lever and he and Rivers have been able to link up to be effective on 
the smaller side defensively, and also Judd McVie, who wasn't as visible in this one. Stat time? You want to get into stat? Uh, I actually want to mention a couple other things first. So I talked about how Geelong looking thinner in the middle at times. There's a quarter every game where the Cats are outright killed in the middle. Often it outright kills the game for them, like the third quarter the previous Thursday against Port. It was the third quarter again on Thursday, but the Demons did not punish Geelong enough from those contest wins and how they were able to move through the middle. They did not convert in terms of goal-kicking, only managing two goals, three. So the game was very much up for grabs at that point, just seven points in it going into the final quarter, and uh, we know what happened from there. Meanwhile, Geelong did do well going through the middle at times, but it was when they were able to to start opportunities from defense, a lot of time from the defensive 50, efficient kicking out of defense, and Geelong scored four goals from 22 opportunities to take the ball out of defense in the fourth quarter alone. This is something that David King highlighted post-game on Fox Footy. As I've said about David King, his like analysis of things that happen during play, brilliant. You know, his like big picture stuff, not as much, but his breakdowns of like sequences during play, awesome. So Geelong had four goals from 22 opportunities out of defense in the fourth quarter alone. That's how you compensate for getting beaten on stoppage clearances, which usually this team doesn't lose. Albert scored four points from 80 opportunities to take the ball out of the defensive half in the entire game. So that obviously has a lot to do with Geelong pressuring well with the contest that the Ds were still able to win in the middle of the ground. They still need, they need to tighten up their delivery into the board 50. As I said, I want to see Chandler and some of the smaller forward half players involve those last marks and shots on goal because they have pieces that are capable of doing it. If you just look back to 2021 and what worked in the later parts of the season and the final series, you'll see all that and more. You know, the other reason the Cats didn't allow points throughout this game is just because the defense is so damn good. It was back in a vintage form. I mean, I don't know. This this was like the most the most 2022 Cats defense performance, I think. Like, yes, the Sydney game was great, but that was, you know, a great performance all over the ground. Whereas this, you know, the midfield was fine. It wasn't great. This this reminded me of the 2022 team in a lot of ways, other than maybe scoring only 78. I think of this team as scoring scoring 100 a bunch of times last year, but this was a vintage showing. Anything else to say? I mean, obviously, we can talk all day about these two teams, but I, I think it's time to we go on to the stats of this one because there's some juicy stuff further down the line here. We don't want to go too long here for our listeners. And for me, because I also have plans for the day. Ah, yes, because vacation. Anyway, Bitch Duncan, goal behind, 22 disposals, 8 marks, 615 meters. Tom Stewart, 22 disposals, 9 marks, 515 meters. Tom Atkins, 19 disposals, 9 tackles. Mark Blitzob's a goal, 19 disposals, 10 contested possessions. Tanner Brune, two goals behind, 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions. And Gary Rowan, who, yes, kicked three goals to win, also kicked two behinds. He had 16 disposals and seven marks. Rowan is now, I think it is 18-2 in his career when kicking three or more goals. The two losses were last week, and then back in 2016, when the Swans fell to Hawthorne on account of just being a little less accurate in front of goal. With Clayton Oliver out, it was no surprise that Christian Petraka led the way stat-wise for the Demons. He kicked 1-2 from 33 disposals, had 10 clearances, and gained 600 meters. Angus Brayshaw, 25 disposals and 13 contested possessions. He spent a lot more time in the center, attending 
more centered bounces and being directly involved in contests. And that worked a very good effect for a lot of this game, as we expected, considering what he did on the King's birthday. Well, not on the King's actual birthday. That's in November, I believe, but in the King's birthday match two weeks prior on the King's birthday holiday there. Uh, well, Rivers, the King's birthday with the Eaton Wall game. Yeah, the Eaton Wall game itself is on St. Andrew's Day, I believe. Which is like within a couple weeks of it, so good enough. Yeah, I guess close enough. Trent Rivers of a high from 25 and 12 intercepts. Jack Viney, 25 and 8 tackles. Lockie Hunter, 23 disposals. Christian Salem again, 22. Ed Lighton had 21. Stephen May, not sure if we gave us round gaining aspect of it, gained 607 meters from his 16 disposals, but was limited in terms of actual defensive work. It's it's a little bit like how the Cats handled the Bulldogs, where they you know stayed away from Liam Jones. Similar sort of logic, even if the actual you know areas they covered were different. It was it was that same sort of principle. Friday night footy was Spud's games and killed at eight eight fifty six, defeated by the Brisbane Lions twelve twelve eighty four. Wish we'd been able to see more of the uh, the fun stuff with the. Uh, the curtain razor game with uh, some of the great advocates involved with that. I noticed Mad Jack Dahl was involved with that, which got me really happy. And Mitch Robinson did some of the commentary for it. Conlon also just posted a video with uh, Aussie Man reviews, I guess, from the week before, you know, when he had the funny thing with Brian Taylor. Yeah, like 30 seconds or so. He just, just It was less than 30 no. seconds. And it was fantastic. Most of what he does is... Oh, forgot to mention, uh, we had some coaching milestones. This week, uh, the Jalal game was Chris Scott's 300th game coached. An insane record from those games. I thought it was one of the best games he's coached, by the way. Yeah, 207 wins, two draws, 91 defeats from 300 for a very nice winning percentage of 69.33. Friday Night Funny marked Chris Fagan's 150th game in charge of the Brisbane Lions, as well as his 62nd birthday, and the boys played up to it and also got him some nice shoes, apparently. Or one of the players did. I think it was Dunkley. My my thing with Spud's game is, like, man, having learned about Danny Frawley, I mean, we knew nothing about him before getting into footy. I wish we had been around for, like, some of his involvement in the sport and in media, because he just seems like a hell of a guy. And it clearly left an impression on some of the figures that we really enjoy, particularly Jason Dunstall and the rest of the bounce team. Played hard on the old, but understood the effects of that hard play style and hard lifestyle off of it. I, I wish that we'd have been able to, I honestly wish we learned about the sport earlier and he would have been one of the people that I think we would have been really intrigued by in his life as we are now that he's gone. And I'm glad that he's being memorialized in such a way. Unfortunately, the Saints weren't able to play up to the occasion as much. It wasn't as embarrassing as last year. Oh, that was the 35-point loss to Essendon. That was another Friday night, or this tends to be a, Friday night game. Good to get it on the national scene. Of course, but what I was noticing about St. Kilda is that from rounds one through four, they were the number one team transitioning from the defensive 50 to the forward 50. And other than some patches in the third quarter, that strike, that prominence in transition simply wasn't there. And I'm wondering if as of late they've gone too slowly. Maybe there's something about Ross Line's style that's causing them to play a bit too slowly for their own good. Maybe it was Brisbane setting up well across the ground. They did clog the corridor decently well. Maybe it's also that the Saints did admittedly play some weaker opponents to start the year. Well, what I noticed was that a lot of times the Saints just couldn't get past midfield, and that had to do more with Brisbane's forward pressure than anything. 
I thought, as good as the Lions midfield is, as good as Neil and Dunkley are, this team's forwards have been playing their asses off, even with Charlie Cameron being quiet. He did kick a goal at the very end, did get his fingerprints on this game a bit in terms of the pressure, but this game lived in the Lions forward half, and a lot of the time of their forward 50, that allowed everyone else on Brisbane to play further up the ground, allowed for more effective kicks from the likes of Connor McKenna, as well as Kadeen Coleman. Defensively, it enabled Harris Andrews to drift off his main man assignment, which was Anthony Caminiti, actually. And he had his highest rated game in two years, nine intercept marks and 14 intercept possessions overall. And one of the best defensive efforts we've seen from any player this year. Another thing that enabled Andrews to have that freedom is that Jack Payne did excellent work on Max King. I thought both Payne and Ryan Lester had really nice games. That's a combination where it ha- we haven't gotten to see both of them play like that. So that's that's a huge, huge step. Well, it seemed like a lot of the time Payne had been keeping Lester out of the lineup. Froggy's been getting more chances as of late one way or another, I think, with some of the older players in, uh, in other parts of the Oval not being there as much, particularly Daniel Rich, I'd say. Um, Lester has been afforded the opportunity and... He's done reasonably well with it. Better, I'd say, as a carrier than as a one-on-one defender. And Mark did get eight marks and nine intercepts in this one. But I, I, in terms of the players by whom I was impressed out of Brisbane's defensive ranks, I, I thought Andrews, then Payne. Not a knock on Lester at all, though. Payne held King to just two behinds. And I, I mean, you could have kind of seen it coming as well when King missed his first shot. But still very good defensive work. First time he's been held goalless this season. The Lions are really, I think, coming into form. This was the sort of game that I think you can expect out of them pretty regularly when they're so dominant up front and so good in the middle that, no, they're not perfect defensively, but as long as they're just decent there, which they were, things are going to end pretty well. People remain concerned about whether or not Eric Hipwood is able to be that premier forward with Joe Danaher spending more time as a second ruck. Hipwood. One of his more complete games, kicked 4-1, just five marks and 12 disposals, but made the most of the chances he had. Had an assist as well, which takes him to a career-high 14 goal assists already. So he was at the end of chains in this game on Friday, but he can stay plenty involved even when he isn't that main forward target. He now has 10 goals in his last three games, by the way. If you're going to shut down Joe Danaher, Hipwood's going to get some... And vice versa. You had all of Neal's, Dunkley, and McCluggage producing in the midfield. You had a good game out of Jared Berry. Oscar McInerney shut down Rowan Marshall largely. A couple of guys for the Saints that did really impress me are Brad Crouch and uh, Jade Gresham. Crouch, 25 disposals and an octopus. Uh, Mason Wood did have 24 disposals, but I don't think he was super impactful. I think teams have done a good job limiting him and Seth Ross lately, and that's the biggest difference between the Saints now and where the Saints were at the start of the year. And Gresham is a piece that I think more and more of the Saints are going to be holding on to. I know a number of teams are looking at him. There have been rumors about him. And the Blues, he completes their forward line, even when he's never been the star there. And about McCluggage, you know, Reese Matheson has that nickname of the barometer. Hugh McCluggage is actually Brisbane's barometer. The Lions are 9-0 when he reaches 20 disposals. He had exactly 20 in this one. And they're 0-4 when he plays against fewer than 20. So that's 
a whole three-course meal for Thawne there. And he returned to a lot of that wing role. Still not sure if he's one of the highest-tier wingmen, maybe because I don't think of him as a pure wing, but plenty serviceable in that spot and afforded that outside ability and outside spot on the Oval with the contests that Neil and Dunkley are able to win. Neil with 15 contested possessions as part of his 29 disposals leading the way there. It only felt for like a few seconds like the Saints were really threatening in this game. Seemed like Brisbane was in pretty complete control. You know, it was 38 to 15 at half. Not the most exciting first half. Pretty thoroughly dominant. Saints did get it down to 15 late in the third when Cam Nitty got away with the Shepherd, But Danaher scored after the third quarter siren. Great job getting goal off the center bounce. Gresham got it down to 16 with 17, 19 left. And then Max Tang nearly had a goal that Oscar McInerney got a finger on. Ball don't lie, or finger don't lie, because there was an obvious push in the back. And then Lyon shifted play back downfield, picked a couple behinds, and then Dougal Howard gave away a really dumb 50 to Kadeen Coleman, part of the, you know, off the stand rule. That opened it up to 23 and really put the game to bed. I hadn't noticed Howard in a negative light before that, but that's the way I leave this game thinking about him is just focusing on that moment over and over again. That and McInerney getting his pinky on Max King's shot were the two inflection points in the fourth quarter. I don't think Howard played a bad game necessarily, but you look at how good he was at the start of the year, and you look at the difference between the Saints then and now, and I will say this, the Saints then versus now, they're not bad now. They're nowhere near as bad as they were late in the season last year, but there's clearly you know, a difference between the way they were playing at the start of the year. I think they were overachieving. I think they're still a solid team. I think finals are still within reach. And even if they don't get there, I think we'll look back at this season much more optimistic about their future. As of now, they're in fifth, but they're only safe by four points. Um, Carlton, all the way down to 15th, are only 10 points behind them. So, I mean, the Saints can seriously finish anywhere from third down to like 15th. Maybe, yeah, I think 15th is the lowest that any of that group could finish. Unless... Hawthorne pulls some Hawthorne matches. And if there's anyone, by the way, who's, who has stepped up and been that, you know, secondary defensive stalwart and intercept and intercept marker behind Cal Wilkie, it's been Josh Battle. What's a battle? Had nine intercepts and a 19 disposal effort. So really, when you're looking at the St. Kilda back, it's Wilkie, then Battle, then Howard if he's on. Yeah, you need Jimmy Webster to kind of be like, I guess, the fourth guy behind those. Uh, you want to get into stats on this one? Yeah, Noted a lot of them already. Uh, Josh Dunkley kicked 1-1 from 26 disposals and 7 tackles. Not much of a goal kicker. That was just his second all the year and thus with the Brisbane Lions. Jared Berry kicked 1-1 from 19 disposals. Marks of this game were plus 36 to Brisbane. And the Saints were plus 21 in tackles, though, considering Brisbane's possession numbers. That kind of makes sense. And the Saints, you know, they try to clog things up. They try to get pressure on you. They are usually a pretty active tackling team. I think, and I could be jinxing this badly, but I think one of the things that Ross Lyon has been able to do with the Saints is make it much less likely for them to get absolutely blown out with the style they play. Jack Sinclair finished with a goal behind 36 disposals, 492 meters, kind of played freely all over the ground, had a pretty nice showing. I liked his game. I like his games week in and week out, getting a lot more center line time and able to both pressure and carry from there. A more accurate long kick as well. 
I can understand him being placed in the All-Australian team in a couple different spots, even. Also, the mustache definitely works for him. He looks a lot better with it than without it. Still not a fan of his flow, though? No, but the mustache helps. Brad Hill, a goal in 25 disposals. Naziah Wanganin Miller, a goal in 24. Jack Steele, 21 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 12 tackles. Saints, next few weeks, I think they're going to be a team that we're going to be talking about a bunch just because of where they are in the season. They're at West Coast, chance to really pad their percentage, which is needed. Then they host the D's at Gold Coast, host North at Hawthorne. Well, at Hawthorne, but it's at Marvel. I think the schedule up until the last two or three rounds is really friendly for the Saints. And I think it yeah, round what saves them. Other than the Melbourne game, going through round 22 looks pretty friendly. And this game here in round 15 started a stretch where they have seven of their final 10 games at Marvel Stadium, including all of rounds 19 through 23. Cracks Knuckles, Sydney Swans, 31, 19, 205, defeating the West Coast Eagles 5 4, 34. Um, all right, I'll say it. The Eagles did draw this game with Isaac Heath. Our expectations for you were even lower than last week, but holy fuck. I uh, honestly wanted to see 200. I knew it could happen. The Eagles have not won at the SCG since 1999. They've only beaten the Swans in New South Wales once in that time, which was the opening round of 2007 at Stadium Australia. And that was a one-point win. I said before the game, their misery at their interstate rivals ground will continue tonight. And boy, did it. I was expecting a much better defensive showing, even without Jeremy McGovern in there. I thought that actually having Tom Barras back there would do them some good, but he was overwhelmed that there's not much that one person is able to do there when you get bombarded with 77 inside 50s. The Eagles with just 34, so that's plus 43 there, and Mark's inside 50, 29-3. I have a listener comment to read on the air, actually, from somewhat loyal listener Matt Hillman. says, Benjamin, your team sucks. Matt's one of Ethan's best friends, and he's yep. right. Yep, I'm embracing it. In fact, uh, my friend Cole, who I've gotten to watch a lot more of the footy of lately, uh, just texted me late Saturday here, afternoon Sunday in Australia, and just said, the West Coast Eagles are really, really bad. I told him, my boys, and I saw it coming. I just want to put the numbers into perspective. Or In their last two games, they had a bye round 14, so... I guess you could chalk this up to another terrible performance out of a bye. That's, you know, a theme that we've seen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in danger. This team has allowed 379 points in two games over three weeks. That is a lot of points to allow in a three-game stretch. That would be a little over 126. For four games, that would be nearly 95. For five games, it would be about 76. Probably about the number of points you should be allowing in, I don't know, four and a half games, and they've done it in two. They had no back line for the first of those, uh, so I could understand that. that would, then they were just overwhelmed in the second. I, c- I can understand both of these. And I'm past the point of depression from this. It's at the point of awe that a team managed to, to do this to them. It's the first time that anybody's put up 200 points since Geelong put up 233 against Melbourne in round 19 of 2011. 
And 171 is the Swans' equal greatest margin of victory in their history in the AFL and the Eagles' greatest margin of defeat. I thought someone had at least put up 200 in the last couple of years since like, or someone had put up 200 in like, I don't know, 2019 or something. That's that's really depressing. Now, I believe the most that we've seen before 205 was the Crows putting up 174 two weeks prior. I got out in the shower and saw it was 38 to 6 midway through the first quarter. I said, what the fuck? Watched replay of the Lions-Saints game because I had slept through some of that and then went to sleep. The only other thing I saw out of this game was that sequence late in the game where I, I guess it was Bailey J. Williams. I'm not sure who, but one of the Eagles Ruckman. One of the Williams is because the other was Jack Williams. And yeah, it, it had to have been Bailey J. at that point because Jack Williams hurt his ankle and was subbed off before halftime. Is it? Am I a bad footy fan for not knowing who the fuck Jack Williams is? Honestly, no. He made his debut in the top-up game in round two of last year. Uh, he's the one that ruptured his spleen during ah, training camp in the summer. Anyway, it was like a boundary throw-in or something. You know, there was like a minute and a half left, and Williams just stood there. Didn't even make like a half-ass attempt. And I feel like that just sums up a lot. This wasn't, you know, Pete Laddams expecting to lay a big tackle on Harry Himmelberg and it totally backfiring. There was a lack of effort at the end, and while it's understandable, I hate it all the same. There were very few players that played through the whole way. I'm glad that Luke Shuey was one of them. I mean, I, I at one point, I just straight up listed the players that I appreciated in this game on Twitter. And I, I like the famous scene, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, and fuck you on it. That's sort of like half-baked or something, I think. Yeah, some some stoner comedy. I've never watched it. I just like that. It says, oh, you're cool, and the old woman smiles. It's it's oh, it, it, it's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I said I appreciate Oscar Allen because I appreciate him week in and week out. I hope he's named captain next year. I appreciate Tim Kelly, although there were some people who were not being super complimentary of him. Luke Shuey, Elliot Yo. I even saw his effort dip. Ruben Jinby and Elijah Hewitt always attack the ball. Brady Hoff is you know a player that I really really support, and he got a decent amount of the pill. That was it though. That was just about it. I, I, I'd appreciate Tom Morasmore if he was able to, you know, stick a couple more. But I mean, he was he was overwhelmed. I want to focus on, you know, a couple of big Swans performances, though. Braden Campbell was everywhere early on. By the time it had gotten out to that six goal to one margin when he stepped out of the shower, he'd already had four score involved with six inside 50s. Angus Sheldrick got the Rising Star nomination from a 29 disposal and 12 score involvement game where he kicked one of three. And I insist that Errol Golden will win a Brownlow. He was a leader from the very beginning. Kicks three goals straight from 32 disposals, 13 scored involvements, 587 meters. And he did win the Best on Ground trophy, which is a pretty cool trophy, the Gunshell Gallantry trophy. You know, this is a game that memorializes the victims of the sinking of the HMAS Sydney 2. Is this always done for a Swans-Eagles game or just a Swans home game each year? Yes, it's a Swans-Eagles game because it was sunk off the coast of Western Australia. The discourse about this game, despite the Swans kicking 200, had almost nothing to do with the Swans and everything to do with the Eagles, how historically bad they are, and the merits of the unbalanced schedule and teams being able to double up, which I think just says it all. The Eagles are the first team ever with 12 consecutive 40-plus point losses. Their margin of the last eight games is minus 746, which 
pips the Greater Western Sydney Giants from an eight-game stretch in their inaugural season. Call them Mario because they just got one up. I mean, it's uh, I I I marvel at this sort of thing. No stadium pun intended there because this game was not there. I'm just I'm not surprised though. You can see all these historic things, but the vision checks out. It is a very young list, and it's still banged up. There is still no excuse for giving up that sort of margin. Dominoes will fall. One of them already has. Their uh, longtime strength and conditioning coach is leaving at the end of the season. He's been there since 2008. I hope that Warren Kofod, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is not the only domino. I would not mind if Trevor Nisbet leaves a year early. The football department needs a refresh and an external review. I would say this game was so bad that you have to do more than just, you know, make eight changes. Somebody has to be gone permanently. Or you need to have players do what Jack Dunstan and Daniel Rich did and take themselves out. Like, I don't care if it's like the guy who puts the tips on the end of shoelaces. Somebody has to be fired immediately. I want Andrew Gaff to say, I'm not up to par. It, it can start there. And Yes, I have not been complimentary of Adam Simpson, but his hands are somewhat tied in this, and I want to see the people above him go. And I want to see a first-time head coach next year. As much as I admire Damian Hardwick for what he did, firstly, I don't think he wants to be in that in that fucking mess. And secondly, I just think you need to go brand new. Bob Hawthorne are doing, hey, would have been nice to have been able to keep Sam Mitchell in that coaching staff. Huh? I mean, I would love to see the Eagles post Jamie Graham for Frio. He was on that. Yes, he was on that friendship staff, and it would be a first-time head coaching gig for him. This game was so bad, so lopsided, that I wrote down the stats for 14 different swans. And we mentioned a couple of them already. I mentioned Golden, Sheldrick. I'll mention Campbell's stats, by the way. Behind from 20 disposals and 534 meters gain, it's very effective ground gain from him. Sheldrick starting to look like a guy that, you know what? Good sleeper pick. My sleeper pick was Hayden McLean. I feel okay about that. Chad Warner, uh, two goals, two behinds, 33 disposals, 19 score involvement, 703 meters gained. Luke Parker, two goals, 28 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 13 score involvements, 10 clearances. James Robottom, two behinds, 27 disposals, 20 contested possessions. I'm amazed the Eagles even contested 20 possessions. 13 tackles, 12 score involvements, 9 clearances. Honestly, 13 tackles in a game like that? And unders for him, Isaac Keeney, five goals, four behinds, 18 score involvements, 22 disposals. Jake Lloyd, 22 disposals, 531 meters gained. Justin McInerney, three goals straight off, 22 disposals. Tom Hickey, who is towards the lower end of the Ruckman totem pole. 35 hitouts, 19 disposals, 13 contested possessions, seven clearances. Tom Papley, did you know he likes celebrating goals? He had a goal, two behinds, 18 disposals, 12 score involvements, and eight marks. Benjamin Sleeper pick Hayden McLean, three goals, two behind, 17 hit out, 16 disposals, 13 score involvements. Joel Amarty and Logan McDonald, each with four goals. McDonald also had seven marks. Basically, if you didn't kick multiple goals in this game and didn't have double-digit score involvements, you probably have a problem. By the way, it was also Callum Mills' first game back. Yay! Managed, subbed off for Robbie Fox. Didn't mind that. Surprised that Fox was the uh, sub. I imagine it was just to be more. Likely like in that respect to have a backline sub. Hope he doesn't stay in that role. Hope he is able to stay in the 22 because Fox deserves that. But you're really seeing out of this game as well. You saw what makes McLean so valuable. He's not going to be that top goal kicker. But through his second ruck work and the possessions that he's able 
the game. The Hits, he can get two advantage with that spot. He will free up their other talls to do their best work, even if it's against 18 pylons. I'll mention some stats for some Eagles I appreciated. Luke Shuey with 28 disposals, 8 tackles, and 511 meters gained. Tim Kelly, a goal from 27 and 7 clearances. Elliot Yo, 19 disposals, and an octopus. He got through this game without getting hurt, so I imagine that uh, it'll happen next week back at the Gabba, where he began his career. Oh gosh, the Lions are going to break the record, aren't they? Ooh, that's going to be rough. How much money would you be willing to put, to put on the Lions breaking the record and scoring 240? I'd give it like 5 to 1. There's a 20% chance they do it. I would love to see those odds. Actually, you know what? I think it's less likely because now teams are going to half-ass it even more against the Eagles. And probably I don't think everybody. I don't think so. Percentage is so valuable that I think a lot of teams will try to punish them as much as possible. That'll be something to watch over the Eagles' last nine games. And looking at that fixture, pretty much every team they play other than North who will probably kick their ass anyway, are in the hunt and will look to get big percentage boosts. It would be so funny if this team actually wins another game, especially if it's not against North. Like, this week makes that possibility, as unlikely as it is, ten times funny. Fuck it, I want to see them draw Carlton. Oh, that would be awesome. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, three more games to run through. Welcome back. Don't forget, we're on Twitter at American Spuddy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Grian Harambe is on Instagram at Cat Name Grian. He is very content sleeping on my teddy bear blanket. Well, my mom's teddy bear blanket that I have had for a while now. He, he loves that thing. I think that's why he is sleeping by me most nights right now while Ethan's away and the only person home. Yeah, I think it's because of the blanket and not because of me. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01 and I'm, I might just Make, start making some more longer form videos for the America's Footy YouTube channel. Everything is so close right now in the finals race that I would love to just take a dive into the road home for that gaggle of clubs that are only 10 points apart. You already have done, you know, similar data analysis stuff like with the, you know, who has the toughest double ups this year, et cetera. We did that at the start of the year. It, it would be interesting to see how those numbers have changed. Yeah, I, I would I would mention that. And also I, I'd have like green, yellow and red games for them, you know, Green, expect them to win. Yellow, toss-ups that they probably need to win. Red, don't expect them to win. Kind of spitballing here, but the more I think about it, the more I want to make this video. Well, let's finish recapping these, and I can go see the Mets, and you can do that. I mean, I'm probably going to be sleeping. I think the caffeine's going to wear off soon. Saturday night footy out west. Want to see a Western team actually doing stuff, like playing competently, and also, believe it or not, winning? Well, it's not, believe it or not, what is Frio. Dockers 14-9-93, defeating Essendon 9-7-61. Controlled this game throughout. I was expecting this to be a much closer contest. This is a game that I have yet to really digest. I'm going to do that between now and when we record our round 16 preview, so I'll have a bit more to report on. But just looking at the way this game seems to have gone, it looks like Frio were able to open things up. There weren't a lot of tackles laid either way, and... You know, they used Essendon's kind of lack of bulk and muscle against them, which is how you're supposed to play against them. Yeah, they did. Essendon brought a whole lot of pressure to start the game. It felt like they were making up for the Eagles' complete lack of pressure throughout their game. But, um, oh yeah, this game was also pushed back by five minutes because of how many goals were scored in Sydney, just to make sure that, you know, 
this game and Channel 7 had the phony world all to themselves. That seems like a footnote, but it's just another sign of how ridiculous the game before it was. How many goals were scored when you consider that one team only scored five of them? 36 goals were scored in that game. I Wow. And the Swans left a couple big opportunities wanting as well. Anyway, as for this game, Benjamin, you take the lead. Tell me what I need to know because outside of the score and going through like the stats, I know nothing. All right. While you take the American party approach of around the mid 19th century, well, aside from like the whole nativist thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through this one. I noticed that Freo were embracing the chaos in this game. It's strange for me that they're a team that thrives off chaos and a lot of work on the ground, and yet their game falls apart when water falls from the sky. There was rain in the forecast. Luckily for them, it held off because had the slightest bit of precipitation fallen, Essendon would have probably found a way to win this game. Or rather, Freo would have found a way to lose it. Looking at the score here, looks like they really opened things up with a 34 to 18 second quarter and then really put it away with a 25 to 8 third. So an all outscored them 49 to 59 to 26 over those quarters. Yeah, nine goals to four. Well, it started off by the Dockers actually winning the first quarter, which they'd only done once before this entire season, which was round eight against Hawthorne. They were pushing the pace while Essendon were wanting a more controlled, uncontested game. And surprisingly, one of the players that was driving Rio's best work out of halfback was, get this, Liam Henry. I did notice going through the numbers that he had a really big game. Maybe that's the right role for him. I mean, he's never lacked in speed. No, no, no. Maybe he could be one of those accelerator types. I'm not sure if he's better doing that on the outside while Jordan Clark can do that more on the inside or not sure what the solution is, especially once James Ace is back in and that causes a wing spot to be very clearly taken. But there's a blueprint for Liam Henry to remain an integral part of this Docker side if he and they so desire. A behind from 32 disposals, eight marks and 514 meters gained. I believe his previous high for disposals in his career was 21. Liam Henry joins the club. I thought it would have lost college, but he has joined the club, finally, of guys that we talked a bunch of shit about, and then they finally delivered. Congratulations. He joins the likes of Jack Henry, Tanner Rune, Ben Miller, Trent Rivers. I knew what Rivers could be. I also knew what Luke Jackson could be in this one. Hey, 2021 Premiership teammate segue. It was one of Jackson's most involved games. He had seven score involvements in the first half alone. Jackson ended up taking 3-1 from 17 disposals, 11 contested possessions, and seven marks. He is a center half forward who could do some good ruck work as well. Had nine score involvements for the game, by the way. But look, Sean Darcy returns to the lineup. Luke Jackson returns to his natural role. It is not rocket science. Sean Darcy is crucial to this Frio side. He's a more mobile ruck than for what I think a lot of people give him credit as well. The returns of Sean Darcy and Michael Frederick could not be understated. Between Liam Henry in the back half and Michael Frederick in the forward half, you had that speed return. Dawned on me at one point that between his speed, pressure, and longer picking ability, Freddie is a microcosm of Frio's smaller group, particularly their small forwards. And I think this game will help people understand how important he is to their structure. I want to touch on Luke Jackson again real quick. Like I said, didn't really see, see much of this game, but this is a matchup that a big, strong dude like him should thrive in, where, as we've said, I don't know how many times Essendon just lack a body to play against guys like that especially with Sam Draper being out with a hip injury. So it was Andrew Phillips as the ruck, 
And then in terms of defensive work, I mean, he couldn't have Phillips following him the whole way. And Essa didn't lack that key defender. Brandon Zirk, Thatcher, and company got bullied again. And I, I feel bad for him because that's the one thing that this team is missing. Darcy Parrish returning to the lineup meant good things for the rest of the midfield and their overall structure. Ben Hobbs and Nick Martin continued to be productive. 26 disposals and a goal each for those two youngsters. But lacking the ability to match up with Jackson, both in the ruck, even with Nick Bryan in there a bit, as well as over the rest of the ground, you knew this game was going to be very, very difficult for them. There were a number of great individual plays in this one as well. We'll touch on some of them in a bit because they are nominees. There's one that was a near miss, though. Michael Frederick bounced, shed a tackle, had a long-range kick. Had he managed to kick that goal, I would have voted for it for goal of the year over Will Ashcroft. So take note of that play when it happens. It's later on in the contest where the game was clearly won. I will stay invested through the end of the game just for that. Right on. Some Frio stat lines that I have not mentioned yet. Caleb Sarong with a goal from 32 disposals, 10 clearances, what a surprise, and 541 meters gained. Andrew Brayshaw with a goal from 29 disposals, very impressive goal at that. Luke Ryan with 31 disposals, 18 marks, geez, and 663 meters gained. The Frio back line, they kick and mark a lot, you know, kicking around to each other, looking for the right angle, and then through Henry, they could accelerate. I'm hoping that it's not just Luke Ryan's stats that put him onto the Australian squad if he gets there, as I expect him to. I'm not sure if I put him in my Australian back six at this point, but he'll be in the 44-man squad. Jager O'Meara behind from 21 disposals. Matt Johnson, a goal from 16, eight marks and seven tackles. I continue to be impressed with his work in the forward two-thirds. Really eager to compete for the ball, perhaps a little too eager at times. And playing above his age already, as is, of course, Jai Amos. Amos kicked 2-1 in this game, but I just want to mention the fact that he's 19 and is able to play as strongly and cleanly as he does blows my mind, and I think he will be an all-Australian forward before he hits 23. Johnson seems like a good 22 under 22 candidate at this point, and he slipped under our radar. He wasn't either of our sleeper pit. And we'll and we've talked a ton about the young guys on this team. I mean, I didn't notice him much in terms of their build up to this season. Maybe he should have been on our radar a bit more, considering he had a year at Peel Thunder being pick number twenty one from twenty twenty one. But yeah, very impressed by him. Frio being plus eleven in tackles isn't sur- as surprising to me as it may be for some because of the pressure that the Dockers put on. I'm still disappointed when I see you know a contested game like like this, and the losing side, the one that had less forward time, wasn't closer in the tackle count, if not winning gas. Yeah, Essendon only 45 tackles for the game. The team's only combining for 101 tackles is definitely low, but I think that's Frio imposing their style above all else. On Essendon's side, Zach Merritt, a goal off 29 disposals. Andrew McGrath, that's that's the sound a TH makes. Oh, a TH makes a sound? Yeah. 27 disposals, 8 marks, 630 meters. Dyson Heppel, 24 disposals. Darcy Parrish, 1-1 off 24 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and 9 clearances. Is this a game that would make him look good in hoops? Absolutely. That's the exact sort of production out of the midfield that Geelong need. And Jordan Ridley, 23 disposals and 10 marks. Ridley, not as big as Zerk Thatcher, especially in terms of 
Zerk Thatcher's got some height on him, but he is their most active interceptor. All right, let's get a little spicy. Ah, this game had me so frustrated. Collingwood 12-10-82, defeating Adelaide 11-14-80. I, as much as I love Mason Cox, it was great to see him get those two goals back-to-back and how fiery he was at getting his glasses snatched away by Ben Keys. There was a fine for that, by the way. But he seemed to especially important to laugh about it, though. Afterward, yeah. Um, I realized that at the end of the game, the game was just umpired very loosely. And unfortunately, the Crows ended up being the last victim of that with Jordan Dawson not getting a high contact call against Jamie Elliott that would have gotten him a very reasonable set shot, a hell of a lot more reasonable one than he nailed to win Showdown 51 last year. That call was the one that deserved a lot of discussion. I know you were pretty bothered by a couple of others. It was that one more so. I was irritated by the way that Collingwood took the lead off of that free and 50 to Nick Dacos, which is the correct call. I just, maybe I wasn't seeing the, the play at, as well as I should have, that Rory Sloan did really impede him and hold on to Dacos in that give and go. That's sort of one, two. I, would, I cannot deny. I'm fine with that just being a downfield free. I mean, I, they were probably getting a goal out of that sequence anyway, so. I believe the correct adjudication, though, is a free and 50, and Nick Dacos made sure that was correctly umpired. I mean, good on him for being on top of that and playing up to the moment as well and kicking that goal. I knew from that point, though, the Pies were not going to trail again. I mean, it certainly didn't help that the Crows did their thing of dominant quarter possession-wise, stoppage-wise, and they only kicked 1-5 in the first and 2-5 in the fourth. On that alone, the Pies deserved to win this game. It, it felt so much like that first matchup that they had played. As much as we can talk about the umpiring, and I will say this, Jan Dawson should have been paid that one, but that's one that, unfortunately, as much as I'm a believer in calling the game the same throughout, you never see that called at the end of a tight game. Like, you basically have to murder someone at that point. Like, you look at what it took to get Dawson the kick last year, or you look at the shepherd that Buddy got away with when Ollie Floyd nearly won the game against Port earlier this season. Had that gone through, I would have expected to see, like, a full-scale protest, maybe even take it into a courtroom by port about that, about that free that Miles Bergman should have been paid. So, basically, each quarter of this game took on its own identity. First quarter, Adelaide plays great, has very little to show for it, kicking 1-5. Collingwood wrecks them second quarter, not just beating them with their usual intercepts and transition, but also their forwards getting great leads and just outrunning the Crows up and down the ground. Crows kick 7-1 in the third. They outscore Collingwood 43-3. Take the lead. Taylor Walker went off. Ned McHenry went off. McHenry, a great pick for the sub with the speedy provides, opening up a lot of the game for them, particularly on the outside. Noticed his involvement in a couple crucial passages that ended in goals. He may find himself in that role more. He was a big reason why the Crows managed to convert so well from the back half. They kicked five goals straight from eight back half intercepts in the third quarter. My other biggest takeaway from this game, by the way, before we get into the fourth quarter where Collingwood did their usual thing combined with Adelaide being inaccurate, is that Mitch Hinge might be like the most fun chaos sickos player. Like Sam Frost, we you know, you talk about Frostball and usually what he does is just fucking dumb. What Mitch Hinge does is like either a brilliant player or complete just like a massive fuck up with like zero in between. I guess you could call his play style unhinged. Yeah! 
Anyway, Crows kick a few behinds in a row in the fourth after maybe the play of the night. You know, Mason Cox kicked back-to-back goals. The second of those, he gets into it with Josh Worrell, who was holding his jumper. We know Mason talks a lot of shit. It's funny because he's up to the the field. But Worrell was the one who really started the actual fight. And then was when Keyes grabbed Mason's glasses. Then came pretty interesting play that I think was umpired correctly for what it's worth, where Isaac Rankin thought he had a goal after a Lachlan Murphy kick into the goal square. Might have been touched by John Noble, might have been touched by Brayden Manor. I think on review, what it looked like to me, the most likely thing was that Rankin's boot had it after Noble's finger, but I thought that was where the on-field call should stay. Also makes sense for Noble to just start having huge plays, which he did. When I, I saw that play, I thought Rankin hadn't even touched it in front of the goal line. I was way off on that. But that was when they got wasteful. Then came the 50 to, for the Nick Dacos goal. Then Josh Dacos hit Will Hoskin Elliott. Brody Smith misses at the other end, so the lead is down to six. And then maybe my favorite Nick Dacos play. You know, because I've talked about he does so much, you know, uncontested. He had this play where he kind of swept around everyone in the forward 50 to set up. Jamie Elliott, whose snap ended up missing on the full, and it led to an Adelaide run and goal the other way. Like, this was maybe the best work I've ever seen Nick Dacos do with the ball. I just want to appreciate that because, like, we all know he's good. I want to provide a little different analysis. I think this one kind of gets lost because not that long after, there's a goal at the other end. It was just a brilliant play all over the forward 50. It was also at that point where you, you really did start to notice the Collinwood pressure getting to the Crows and Honestly, you should have expected the Pies pressure to lift in the last quarter because who was the sub and who should not have been the sub and had been in the 22 in some way, shape, or form from the beginning, but Omer Creary. Yeah, omitting him and Billy Frampton seems like a mistake, as well as Harvey Harrison has done since his debut. I, I liked Harrison. He seemed skilled with the ball. Oh, I, I, I do too. I just can't see enough positives in having him in over McCreary, and he's clearly the next one out if it's not Hoskinellian and Hoskinellian's spot looks more stable as if McCreary is Collingwood's pressure leader. It's John Noble behind him, and Noble had a couple massive plays late. He was able to pressure McHenry to impede an Adelaide passage and then had a huge tackle on Ben Keyes on the wing after that to force a stoppage. So, you know, unsurprising to see those clutch loans from Noble, but with McCreary in there the whole way, I think the pressure wouldn't become too much for the Crows from the beginning. And in terms of Frampton, he could have taken on another tall matchup. More likely Riley Hillthorpe or maybe Riley O'Brien on occasion. One of Adelaide's three talls tended to have a good one-on-one matchup more times than not. And that's a concern that I expect Craig McRae to address when they're playing a taller lineup. Also, just having Frampton in against the Crows would have made way too much sense. Also, I just want to note that he was your main character pick and he didn't even fly. Yeah, but also just if there is some vulnerability in this Collingwood team, I don't think their talls are quite as good as a lot of the others. And I think that's where you can expose that. And I think a lot of teams are going to pay attention to how that went in this game and try to exploit it moving forward. Well, Darcy Moore and Nathan Murphy remain quite skilled, but Moore needs another, only two other talls when mashing up against a tall 450 for him to do his best work with the ball in hand. Crows did a good job keeping Moore out of the equation, but Isaac Quainer ended up with 15 disposals, nine intercepts, and eight marks. It's like, if you're going to stop one of them, you're going to have to deal with the other. Oh, and Brayton Manor, 27 disposals, 10 intercepts, 481 meters. So 
you know, I think making sure Darcy Moore doesn't beat you is a wise decision, but there are still comes at a cost. Every vote that you do against this Hollywood team comes at a cost. But like Riley O'Brien, for example, marked a ton in this game. Uh, one in a low light for this game. I generally think Anthony Hudson is the best AFL commentator, but in this game, like just listening to him, you would say Taylor Walker was the only Adelaide player that did anything. Like it was so much of a Collingwood love fest and it was just a really well-played game. I think that part of that was swayed by Nathan Buckley being in the booth and, you know, having more knowledge about the Collingwood players. And so he was obviously talking about them more. He's praiseworthy of the Crows as well, obviously. I, I wish more attention had been given to guys like Ned McHenry, though, and Mitch Hange. But also the thing that I realize about Anthony Hudson and why I like him over guys like Dwayne Russell is that Hudson knows when he's reached the limit in terms of over-the-top commentary, wet and like cheesy references and puns. He knows when to turn up that side and when to tone it down. And that I appreciate. If I had to pick, you know, I love Brian Taylor's voice on a big game, but if it's not going to be him, Hudson's great. Just, again, I think I w- it would have been nice for the Crows better performers to get more recognition in this game. I wonder if they should keep Buckley off commentating Collingwood games for that reason. I mean, I would have loved to have heard Hudson with KE on this. Or what about, you know, you have one Collingwood guy and one Adelaide guy. Balance it out. Not as much a fan of Richuda, though. I, I don't mind him. I like him on the boundary. I don't know, Eddie. That's that is. I can work. I mean, he's good with anything. He makes everything better. All right. Nick Day costs a goal, 37 disposals, eight clearances. Just that one around in the forward 50. Again, didn't lead to a score, but fuck, that was good. Josh Day costs a goal and 33 disposals. Once again, he kicks the first goal. I feel like Josh Day costs first goal score is such an easy bet. Tom Mitchell still ended up with a goal behind 27 disposals and seven tackles. And Scott Pendlebury, 24 disposals, 493 meters gained. Jordan Dawson probably gets the three votes from this game. 35 disposals, 12 tackles, 9 marks, 665 meters, and I really would have backed him to kick that goal. Damn it. A little fumbly at times, had some early turnovers, but the most impactful player on the ground as a whole uh, casually put up 172 points. So, uh, Steez, Khalil, way to go. He won his fantasy matchup in our league this week because of Jordan Dawson alone. He was facing Captain Nick Dacos, by the way. What I noticed about Dawson, watching this game really closely, he's got really good vision. His ability to hit targets from anywhere is on display, and that's what makes him so good. Could not agree more. Rory Laird with 31 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. Ben Keyes behind from 29, 16 contested possessions as well. And Mitch Hinge with 23 disposals, gaining 675 meters. Chase Jones with 23 as well. Isaac Reichen kicked 1-1 from 21, and Taylor Walker, yes, he still exists, kicked 5-1 from 13 at 7 marks. He leads the Coleman race. Should also mention, you know, Lenny Phillips uh, on Twitter pointed this out. Dawson was bloodied by that high contact, so would it have been Josh Shelley then to take the kick? He had kicked no goals, three for the day, but man, what a time it would have been. And how crazy it would have been for Dawson to be the one to have to go off and not be able to take the kick congratulations to the pies on becoming just the second team to win coming out of a bye of course they did that against the team also coming out of the bye which is also how the saints became the only other to do it thus far it's it's weird you think all right we got a chance to heal up we're healthy guys get to rest and then 
teams have just come out flat. It's been weird. I mean, it didn't look like Hawthorne were flat coming out of the bye at first. They led at quarter time on the Gold Coast. Three goals to two, 19 to 12. They had all the forward time early on. It was a clear way to prevent an undermanned defense from being exploited, but you knew it wasn't going to last. And the Suns started working possession back toward an even point late in the first quarter. The Hawks actually kicked the first three goals, but yeah, after that, it was all Suns, and you could really see that Hawthorne were without James Sicily. That's the price you got to pay for a big win, a Sicily suspension. Suns 14-17-101, defeating Hawthorne 5-4-34. The Hawks were held pointless in the last. Suns scored five goals in both the third and fourth quarters. Hey, the uh, Hawks, Eagles, and Isaac Eney all picked 5-4 this week. Oh, shit. Wow. Didn't even think about that. It's a draw. Three of them are even. Yes, so. Um, yeah, the, I, you know, it's not quite the plankton I never thought I would get this far because the Hawks are used to starting hot, but basically they got off to a great start in the set. Okay, I'm done. Now I'm actually done. We are done with this game. Once Gold Coast got possession of forward time, again, Hawthorne were exposed defensively. You couldn't have, I mean, there's a big difference between James Sicily leading your defense and it being Sam Frost mostly with Lockie Bramble and Josh Weddle having to play above their age. I like Weddle a whole lot. I want Bramble to be more than a fringe player because he is my sleeper pick and also because I think he's got a whole lot of potential. But the Suns were able to spread the field really well. They spread off clearances better. That was also a lot more noticeable once Will Day went further back. For a lot of the game, Day was playing as a loose halfback and that's not a role that suits him. You need him to be there in the contest to challenge those Gold Coast mids. And whereas Jai Newcomb still was able to challenge them and Connor Nash got 14 contested possessions and 10 clearances for himself in a 24 disposal performance, they still needed day there in the middle. Matt Rowell did his normal stuff, 20 disposals, 11 contested possessions and seven clearances. Honestly, it was a quieter game for him considering how he's played without Duke Miller. I guess, yeah. But they got outside quickly to guys like Noah Anderson and a bit further back, Braden Fiorini. Fiorini with his most visible game and his best game for the club this year. 35 disposals, 7 clearances, 7 marks, and 623 meters gained. We expected it would be tough for him to retain his spot once Miller came back. If he could have that halfback roll, a bit of wing action there, he's got a spot even with Tuke in there. Best game for him. Best game also for, I'm so happy to say this, especially because of how much you like him, Ethan, Mac Andrew. Andrew had eight intercept possessions, five of which were intercept marks. It was the most that I'd seen him attacking contests, getting front position, even though he was secondary as an interceptor to Will Powell, who had 12 marks of his own. I was so pleased with Andrew in this game, and the commentators took notice too. I care about two things from this game. One of them is that we get to reference the mighty sun. The mighty sun. And the other is that Hawago Oya's family was at the game, their first time leaving Papua New Guinea. And as soon as I saw them, I was like, oh, please, please put them into the circle after the game like you did with Alex Davies' grandpa. And they did. So that, that made me really happy. The Suns are clearly committed to getting the families of the players involved, making it a really welcoming atmosphere for them. And that's important considering, you know, most of your players are certainly not from the Gold Coast area. 
most of the ones who were from Queensland in the beginning, if they were good enough, left for other opportunities. Take Charlie Dixon, for example. Yeah, that was really all I care about. Also, you know how the country of Tuvalu has made a lot of money off of like .tv URLs and stuff? Unfortunately, Papua New Guinea can't do the same with a PNG photo. Oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. Thinking like, you know, obviously .tv for them, .ly for Libya, which, eh, little dicey, .fm for the Federated States of Micronesia, but Spotify for podcasters was Anchor. It was Anchor.fm. Completing Will Powell's stat line, by the way, 19 disposals, 12 marks, and 516 meters gained. Fiorini was the leading ground getter for the Suns, I previously mentioned, with 623. Noah Anderson was second, gaining 535 meters from a 28 disposal day, in which he kicked two goals and had 11 scored. Volvins noticed him starting a bit further back at times as well. Interesting spot for him. I envisioned him as being a bit further forward at times. It worked, Sam, though. Certainly did. Let's see if it works against teams that are in the finals race, though. Uh, Collingwood in the middle of Saturday. Ben Ainsworth, a goal from 27 disposals and nine marks. Sam Sexy Flanders, because he was not stupid in this one, upon his return, 27 disposals and 521 meters gained. You know who also wasn't stupid and got a decent amount of praise from the commentary team? Darcy McPherson with a 25 disposal and eight mark perform. Just no derps from the derp lord. Brandon Ellis also returned to the AFL side, kicked 1-1 from 16 and 9 marks. And Mal Rosas had a very involved game from the beginning and got reward for it late, kicking three fourth-quarter goals. He kicked 3-2 for 15 disposals and 10 scored involvements. For some reason, it felt like the clearance numbers were more lopsided in the Suns' favor than they actually were. Gold Coast were plus 9 in the game, 37-28. to 28, But I think it's the possessions that were directly after those clearances where the Suns did so much of their damage. There's a reason they were plus 31 and inside 50s, plus 11 and marks inside 50. Meanwhile, the Suns put on 15 tackles inside 50 and Hawthorne just two. Not pleased by that. Noting the difference in play styles, Suns with 47 more kicks, Hawthorne with 64 more handballs. Still though, the lack of pressure inside 50 when Hawthorne did have those chances early on the, the inability to stop rebounds, that's frustrating. And I imagine Sam Mitchell will address that and do so successfully pretty soon. It's Sam Mitchell. I trust him. Still, this team's third quarter issues persist, and that needs to get cleaned up. All right. On Hawthorne's side, Blake Hartwick, who I believe has never had a Brownlow vote, maybe he'll be in line for one after a 38 disposal, 12 intercept, 8 mark, 561 meter performance. Jack Scrimshaw, 31 disposals and 11 marks. That's good, Scrimshaw. Will Day, 29 disposals, 11 intercepts, 9 marks. Jarman Impey, 29 intercepts, 545 meters. James Warple, 28 disposals. And Seamus Mitchell, 24 disposals. All right, let's get this thing wrapped up. Uh, nominees. First off, Mark of the Week. Last week, you had Nat Fife over Jack Buckley. In round 13, Fife won Goal of the Week. Round 14, he wins Mark of the Week. Your nominees for this week are Lockie Schultz over Dyson Happel. Jake Stringer over Neil Erasmus and Nick Murray over Ash Johnson. I was not really impressed by any of these. I will note that Schultz kind of got his foot on Heppel's back instead of launching into his shoulder. So that was different. And Stringer, Erasmus was kind of holding his leg and Stringer was still able to get it. So yeah, Stringer came in from more from the side on that mark. And with Erasmus also impeding him with that hold, I found his the most impressive. So I gave my vote to Stringer. 
I'm going with Stringer as well. None of these are impressive. None of these should show up on Brownlow night, but that's that's what I'm going to go with. I was much more impressed with the goal nominee crop for this week. Firstly, a round 14 winner, though, it was the Sam Powell Pepper goal, tapping the ball ahead off the stoppage, getting it back for Molly Wides, and kicking a roller from the pocket as Mitch Duncan and Zach Toohey closed in. I think that was the point of no return for that Thursday nighter in round 14. But if Sam Powell Pepper isn't going to kick it, an exciting goal because he's on a bye. Kazi Pickett will. And on Thursday night, Pickett read a 450 stoppage well. Didn't hold on to the ball, but soccer off a bounce after Tom Stewart missed him. I was so surprised after Pickett got that that Melbourne weren't able to control the game further. Yeah, I was very, very concerned at that point, knowing the way his goals usually inject life into the team, especially such a dynamic and exciting one like that. Your two other nominees came from Essendon and Frio. So yeah. I told back, you that back goals actually, not just not just the same game, but they were scored consecutively. Correct. So that Dockers Bombers game provided us with four of the six nominees this week. Andrew Brayshaw crumbed and was able to maneuver out of congestion in the pocket off a four fifty stoppage. Andrew Phillips put on honestly a pretty weak tackling attempt, but Brayshaw shedded and then he snapped around his body as well as Jake Kelly's for the goal. And then Jake Stringer, hello again. Couldn't hold on to Mack Welby's handball, but soccered in a one-bouncer from the left pocket. I have a really hard time voting for this one. Ethan, who'd you end up going with? Because of the angle, I'm actually going to go with Jake Stringer here because, you know, like, soccering out of nowhere at that angle is so rare. I think that was the most unique goal, so that's my pick. I'm going Stringer for both. I went Brayshaw very narrowly over Stringer, but honestly, I maybe... All three of these were good. You can honestly see Brayshaw and Stringer be part of, like, if they had, like, an expanded ballot with a top 10 instead of just a top three, Brayshaw and Stringer would make it. Yeah. And I could easily see Stringer taking out both this week, and it would be his second goal of the week win of the year after unleashing that barrel against the Giants in that Sunday game earlier this year. Every time I see that barrel... I hear the, don't call it a comeback, because it's, you know, the uh, Red Rooster, Big Rooster fans. I feel like, oh yeah, I feel like we gotta eat at Red Rooster when we go to Australia, just for that. Gotta go to that and gotta go to Schnitzel. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I don't think the Tribunal's gonna need to sit this week, yeah? Oh, think so? There were a couple of places that got reported that didn't lead to suspensions. And Friday night, it was getting everything gets reviewed. I don't think we really need to report stuff in real time as much. I mean, I guess it's nice to have that umpire angle, but it's a lot less important. And the tribunal is still deliberating. And I guess the appeals board is still deliberating. A uh, main character for this round. I mean, you could go with Mason Cox's goggles, but I guess it's got to be the West Coast Eagles. By the way, Trent Cotchin won the vote for round 14 with his excellent 300th game. And yeah, it's got to be the Eagles. The Swans kicked 200 but nobody's talking about the Swans after that. More dominoes ought to fall for the West Coast Eagles. If they don't, maybe some membership numbers will make them reconsider. Though I doubt it because of how treasured that membership and those tickets are. The wait list on them has always been ridiculous. Our friends in Australia, our family friends, had been on the wait list for a number of years. I think probably more than a decade for, you know, full membership. And then only got it finally in 2018 when Optus Stadium opened. There was some talk in our fantasy chat about the kind of like the structure of the Eagles board and stuff. And basically the way the way it works 
works or the way it's supposed to work is it's an anarcho-syndicalist commune where you take turns to exact as a sort of executive officer of the week, but decisions of that officer have to be ratified in a special bi-weekly meeting by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs or by a two-thirds majority in the case of more major and external affairs. Yeah, the West Coast Eagles are not an autonomous collective in that way. Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. It doesn't sound right the way we say it just as Americans. Yeah. But unfortunately, we can't use that long of a clip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail and expect to avoid the copyright issues. I also like the term moistened bit. Oh, of course. But uh, before we get any, you know, copyright issues here and have Spotify and other podcasters come at us for that, we should probably get off the air. So don't forget, follow us on Twitter and on YouTube at Americans Footy. Follow me at BenjaminHK01. Follow him. I'm pointing to the screen because I'm trying to point to Ethan, even though I'm really not considering direction right now when he's in New York. But follow Ethan at Castle Media. Follow Brian Harambe, the footy cat, on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. He has just been sleeping on my blanket this entire time. He is a very good boy. And we'll catch you again for our round 16 preview. Thank you.